This is welcome to Wednesday breakfast podcast. That- Sorry, fun, fun, fun tip for editing. Because um, people do this all the time when you're when you're um, changing what you're going to say. People often go like you just yeah, just yeah. then. This is a uh, welcome to. So that's really hard to edit. You really want to like put a space in between things. So really, just like give yourself a when you're like oh, I want to edit that because otherwise it's a nightmare to edit. Um, oh, good. Go again. Wednesday Breakfast Podcast. Welcome to the latest one. Hey, uh, this is the first time we're doing a little bit of a an, an intro for it, I believe. It is, it is. Um, usually we've been running with the format of just trying to play a long form of what we did in, in the studios, but we thought maybe it's a good idea to just give the best bits of the guests who share their time. And we had a number of uh, amazing guests uh, on the program. Always a diverse range, I think, we managed to get on the uh, on the Brecky program. Everything from uh, uh, the, the future of uh, organising uh, things using blockchains to, um, uh, to early childhood uh, education. Yeah, and what's going to happen in that space? Who knows? But Avis, Dr. Avis, will hopefully help us out. And we also had ICANN in there talking about the great work that they've been doing that's earned them a Nobel Peace Prize recognition. Fantastic. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Is there anything That's good. That's, a, yeah, that's a, minute, a minute 30. Yeah, you can probably just cut it there and, and start off with the ICANN one or something because yeah. you're not going to put the um, other shows one No, in I didn't there. think there's, no, there's point. no point. Yeah. Um, perfect. All right, we'll just run with that. Yeah, cool. I think it's nice and casual. And yeah, but we right now have on the line Dr. Avis Ridgway. Are you there, Avis? Yes, I am. Hello. Hello. Good welcome. morning, Hello. Hattie. Hello. Um, now, you have had a plethora of experience in the educational field, lectured in early childhood and primary education at Monash University, appointed adjacent research fellow, teaching associate, and current academic collaborations include a plethora of titles. I thought it would be great to introduce you um, as such and hope to be able to talk about different ways um, professionals are being taught um, today to look after young infants that are being sent off to daycare centres and early learning spaces. Yes, what a, what a good topic, eh? Thank you very much for this opportunity <laughs> to talk about this idea that... Uh, we have a big child and community development research group at Monash uh, campus, at Peninsula campus, that is, at Frankston. And, um, yes, this is part of our work. Mm. So, mm. Avis, where are you finding um, that you're spending a lot of your time in research and practice? Well, currently, one of the major things that um, I'm involved with is the infant-toddler area, the birth-to-three age group. And this is oh. because we have so many more children being placed in um, long daycare centres in particular. Yes, yes. It's a good age. It's a good age, Avis, because um, I've, I've got one in that uh, birth range, uh, sorry, in that age range and about to have, have another you? in about one and a half weeks. Oh, well, or or luck, could be today. <laughs> could be today. I don't know. Oh, good luck. Good but luck. we're not going to be putting them in our early childcare, but I know that a lot of people uh, are doing that sort of thing. So, mm, uh, But they are also in your early childcare at home as well. Oh, true. In, in an institutional centre, and the thing is to be able to talk with them and to understand they learn from birth. Mm. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so you've done a lot of work when we were chatting not long ago. You've done a lot yes. of work with your research and looking around at different cultures and how they um, yes. raise and 
introduce, I suppose, the young ones to the world that they will inhabit yes, for the rest yes, of their my, lives. Yes, I have two, in particular, two colleagues, uh, Dr. Gloria Quinones, who's originally from Mexico, and Dr. Liang Li, who's originally from China, but now both Australian, who wor have worked with me to produce a book on studying babies and toddlers. And it's called Relationships in Cultural Contexts. And we're very thrilled with this book because <laughs> we've got people from all over the world who've made contributions to it. And so we can see that early childhood is a concern for many, many people around the world, not just here, that uh, we have to really improve access for young, young families and for young children to being spoken to and to being loved and cared for, you know, in a way that you would hope in a home. Yes. Mm. So that's yes. My work is very interesting, really. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, with uh, zero to three year olds, you're working with quite different um, capacities. There, obviously, the, these are um, these are small human beings, and they're not seeing the world in the same way um, that we do, and that that becomes very uh, obvious. I, I don't think it's something you you remember particularly well, and a lot of people uh, perhaps uh, aren't around. Uh, kids uh, that, no. are, that are close to them of that it's age bad. range. You know, yeah. most most people are just far away, going, "Oh God, annoying baby crying." <laughs> um, but there but is, there's there's yeah. a lot going on. There's a very little study actually around the world in comparison to kindergarten age and preschool age and early early school age. There's very little about what happens to babies and toddlers before they're, you know, three. And so this is why we're concentrating our research on all their relationships. And not only that, but the people, the educators who are trying to work with those children. And do you know, in Australia, for example, we put the least qualified people in what they call the baby's rooms. Because we think, and we have thought in the past, that oh, any old 15-year-old could do this work, and maybe mm. they could. But maybe they can't, and maybe we've discovered that early childhood educators of that age group need very specialised practices, and that's what our latest research is looking at, what those specialised practices are, the educators. So we really need to think about that. Mm. <laughs> yes. So what, what are some of those changes, or what are you seeing in that space? Well, what, that what, some of those, yes, what are some of those changes? Well, for example, let's, let's place a baby on a changing table. You know, you'll have to change nappies. I guess you do already. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you do? Do you, do you actually use that as an opportunity to look face-to-face -face and build a relationship with the child? Yeah. What, what happens? Look, what happens um, in that moment? You know? it's, a, it's an interesting relationship sometimes. I've, I've had some... Um <laughs> feces uh, in interesting places, um, but I think that's part and parcel uh, of the job. But yeah, no, I think it is a, a, a well. Sometimes it's a bonding time. Sometimes it's it's a battle. <laughs> and, <laughs> what we've noticed is when we watch people do this, and various and sundry families and so on as well. Not just in the uh, centres, but in homes, we notice people actually sing to their babies, or they give rhymes and talk to them as if they're just you know, little, as if they're just another human, and they are, of course. They're not just something different, like a baby that can't do anything. So I think that's the thing, to treat the child as capable and, um, you know, help their, <laughs> help their competence, mm, their mm. social competence. It's a really good opportunity, and it's a very small thing, that, for example. Yes, so, so that's one of the specialised practices. Mm. Mm. Well, what sorts of... Um, <laughs> I'm interested in, in, in the sorts of uh, things that you've been seeing 
um, that perhaps might be a little bit detrimental, but you're seeing quite commonly that maybe are, are flying under the radar a little bit. Maybe we're not quite aware, uh, you know, that parents and carers maybe are not aware that these things might be, might be yes. detrimental. Yes, one of the hardest things, I think, families who begin to leave their children and really because they're going to work and what have you or they've got busy routines, they start to leave, is the parting and the collecting and how the children are welcomed into their centre or not. (laughs) So we're looking at the greetings, the comings and goings. We're looking at those, what we call the transitions of little children, of babies, how they're handled, you know, is, is it a firm, gentle, loving grip or is it a quick drop and run? You know, how, do, how does that happen? So we're thinking about those specialised practices that we need to support educators in understanding more about and, and help families with. So we've actually written another book about a pedagogical play, we call it. And, of course, pedagogy is just the art and science of education but we're looking at playful ways, the ways in which we can do these things playfully. You know, and same on the changing table being playful is so important because children are full of imagination full of it right Mm. from birth yes so (laughs) in that space is there any models that say Australian educators are looking towards that are existing and where a population has or a young population has started entering into these care facilities yes yes there are there are several wonderful um, examples around the world and I'm sure we'll find many and we do find many in Australia as well but many of them are um, in places that are long established where children go to long day care as part of the society for example places like Denmark and uh, Sweden we know we've, we've had a very good look at those centres there, but also in Italy. People in Italy, in the uh, Reggio Emilia project, for example, they adore children. The whole community brings the child up. And so they don't have this sort of separate feeling that we often have. My grandchildren, for example, go to a cooperative, which is wonderful. It's run by the families in the local community, and they have their feelings. Everybody knows one another, and the children go down through the normal streets of the place, like they would in Sweden, for example, and they meet people as they go. And, yes, it's just like it's another place, it's another part of your life is there. And as a baby, you learn that. This is where I'm going, you know. <laughs> it's not somewhere separate to be hidden away. Actually, my, my partner and uh, a number of other, uh, m- mostly mothers, because mostly the fathers yes. are at work, but uh, there are some fathers as well, uh, yes. have a, a bush play group where uh, once a week they gather, um, and it's mostly sort of zero to uh, four, five-year-olds, so it's, it's mostly That's younger right. uh, um, mm. toddlers, uh, just to go out and, and play with sticks and dirt and nobody's mm. nobody's to bring their own toys from home you're just you're, you're playing with the dirt when you're there and yes. um, they have a great yes. time well i think that's the exact uh, what i'm talking about that we've come uh, been influenced particularly by the nordic countries you know they do have the outdoor the bush kindergartens or the forest schools as they call them and there's been a big movement in australia to bring that lovely natural feeling that you know when you go to the beach or when you go down to the um, park where you can just have the best time and of course you play don't you you play with your environmental things you don't really need toys you just need one another (laughs) and materials to imagine things with Yes, exactly. oh well. <laughs> so tr- true, Avis. Um, well, I, I was in a bush kindergarten recently down on a creek bed and a little bunch of children had 
all lined up along the log and they invited me to fly off to America, to Disneyland. (laughs) 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 Or maybe... (laughs) So I had to get on board this log and fly off and they all had this idea. You know, they, they had collectively thought about it. They were only three years of age. You know, it's extraordinary what children, <laughs> what worlds they live in, you know, real mm. and imagined. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like listening is a big part of that and taking people earnestly, no matter of age. What advice would you have and give to adults who are about to enter the sphere of parenthood or have recently entered the sphere? You want this advice yourself, do you? <laughs> oh, I'm sure one, I think one, I, one <laughs> Well, first of all, the major thing is, is children are capable They're capable from the moment they're born and they're capable of something and we're not quite sure what it might be yet but you'll find something that your child or your children will be capable of and you express that interest and see the child as a positive, as a positive, um, yeah, strong, capable child. You don't see it as a child that needs this or is weak at that or something wrong. You don't look like that. You look always at the capacity and uh, I think you find, um, try and develop a sense of community with your own location, wherever you are, because that's the best thing is good conditions for development and learning. Yeah, so talk, 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 talk. Don't do baby talk, please. <laughs> <laughs> and now I find myself having uh, having full conversations with my daughter when she's uh, breaking down entirely, and uh, instead of um, uh, try, you know, the the, the discipline, I'm, I'm just explaining to her exactly why yeah. she's wrong. She doesn't listen at that time, but I figure if I keep going, uh, she'll eventually go. Oh, you've been saying this for a while, um, oh. and I'm starting to listen now. And, and I think you're right. They hear your cadences. They hear your every word you say children are far more capable than we believe and understand and when you start to look closely at their gestures and when you start to as we do we do a lot of video filming and reviewing the videos and looking back at those nuances of behaviors and the the sounds that children repeat back they mimic you they imitate you from right from the beginning you know I have a 12 hours old video a, a child 12 hours old the father's sticking the tongue out and the baby sticks the tongue back out like he's got <laughs> the child's face to face. You know, they're in the hospital and the wife is in the bed saying, pa, do that again, do that again. And, and uh, so it's done again and a yawn this time and the baby yawns. So you can't <laughs> believe it. I mean, it's like it's, it's extraordinary. I, had, I actually took this video to the Oxford University and presented this uh, material to a group of people who thought education started at school right Right. (laughs) so they were all gobsmacked i mean it was really interesting to get that data so Mm. i think it's very important that you take um you know you record what your child does and then you can see the the promises you know the little interests (laughs) Mm. i've got a lovely story of um the dog being on the one of my granddaughter's beds and my son comes in and said what's the dog doing on the bed and she sits up she's under three years of age and she says oh we're in a symbiotic relationship and my son goes oh what does that mean and she said well he keeps my feet warm and I keep him warm so she actually understood the meaning of it and he said where did you hear that and she said on my iPad (laughs) So, you you know, we've got a whole new world 
from our world, from your world. We've mm. got a whole new world for young children. A whole yeah. new world, but I feel like that's a, a whole nother kettle of fish that we're, we, we don't <laughs> have the time to open this morning, but kids and technology and toddlers and technology. Uh, oh, but I, it's just part of their world. They don't see absolutely. it as separate. Absolutely, yeah, so part of their what, world, but um, yeah, we, uh, yep. we've got a lot to uh, mm. learn in our, our, how we uh, communicate that to them. But, yeah, part of their definitely, cultural the exactly. cultural practices, which mm. is what education is. It's a cultural practice, yes. That's very true. And on that note, Avis, um, if people wanted to, say, read some different cultural practices from around the world, yes. your book might be a good place to start and I get a different studying, insight. Yeah, studying babies and toddlers, the relationships in cultural contexts is a really good start because we've got um, people from um, Holland, from Indonesia, from... Mexico, from Australia, from New Zealand, from China, from America. <laughs> we've got lots, yes, from Finland. We've got all sorts of Sweden people from everywhere writing in it, lovely chapters in it. So it's a very, very interesting book. And uh, it's called International Perspectives on Early Childhood Education and Development, Studying Babies and Toddlers, Relationships in Cultural Contexts. But it's only one of several books that we're writing at the moment, and we're writing one on peer play and peer development as well. So it's really your peer group. You know, even if you're a toddler, you have a peer group. Mm. <laughs> well, we'll have to watch. So thank you. Uh, my yeah. pleasure. We'll have to watch that space, and we'll put up a little link to that book. It's quite a mouthful. People might need to get back to oh, it. Oh, Patty, and... of course. Yes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. No, no, it's a great title and it's a great initiative behind it. It's been so lovely to hear insights into that space and yes. yeah, appreciate your time, Avis. Yes, thank you very That's much. Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> and you, okay. you enjoy this lovely luck. warm day. You're down near the coast, so yes, half your sorry. luck. Oh, down near the coast. Lucky in you too, I think. Well, you'll take your babies to the beach, I hope. <laughs> okay, all right, Paddy. All right, thank, thank you, you Avis. Much indeed. Interview was a great privilege. Bye. Bye. And it's about 10 minutes away from 8 on 3CR Breakfast with Nick and Patty this morning. Judith, not with us this morning. Uh, we'll be back next week, I believe, but um, that is our uh, final um, live week for the year as we go on holiday. We'll have children. I'm not sure if Avis was aware that we were two people then. <laughs> I may have should have made that clear, but uh, you're not having any babies soon, are you, Patty? Hang oh, on. who knows? That's... Who knows? I don't have a belly. It's a brave new world. So. <laughs> You never know. You never know. You don't know. Um, you're tuned in to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Up next, we've got Judith coming in from last Sunday. She spoke with um, International Human Rights Day. The Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. A number of Australians who were instrumental in setting up ICANN travelled to Oslo for the ceremony. Other ICANN members and supporters watched it at the Melbourne Town Hall and Jem Rumwald was one of them. Jem is the Outreach Coordinator for ICANN in Australia. Judith spoke with her and caught up with her outside Melbourne Town Hall Monday, excuse my Sunday, um, to talk about ICANN and winning the Nobel Peace Prize. We'd just like to acknowledge in the second part of the interview, you may hear the name Yami Lester, who passed away earlier this year. We were awarded the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize for our work raising awareness of the catastrophic humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons and also for our role in the first treaty to comprehensively outlaw nuclear weapons. 
June and July was the end of the negotiations. One session in March, which then produced a first draft, and then that draft was worked through painstakingly, line by line, by about 130 governments and civil society in the room going through it day after day and then on the 7th of July the negotiating conference voted to adopt the treaty and the text that had been negotiated. A couple of months later in September it was formally opened for signature at a ceremony at the UN and it was incredible to see so many countries including so many in the Asia Pacific region many of Australia's neighbours line up and be the first to sign on to the treaty. An amazing moment I can just imagine. What kind of response have you had from Australia? Australia's been opposing the ban treaty very actively. In 2016 there was a UN open-ended working group to work out what's next for nuclear disarmament. Australia participated in those meetings but it was playing an obstructionist role and tried to undermine the outcome. And was that what Scott Ludlam raised in the Senate? Yeah, that's right. So he questioned the government on their role on that in Senate estimates. It was clear that the Australian government is not supportive of this process because it believes that nuclear weapons are essential for Australia's security. And this treaty that has been negotiated by the majority of the world's nations says that that is unacceptable. Nuclear weapons do not make us safe. They are weapons of mass destruction. And while ever some countries say that they're necessary, then inevitably other countries will want to have them. Other countries will hang on to the ones they've got and we will not go further down the path of disarmament. So Australia was playing a very difficult role And then when it came time for the negotiations, they actually boycotted the negotiating conference completely. We were calling on Australia to be part of this historic process, to get on board, because the public supports this treaty. The most recent polling done was in September. It found 73% of the public is on board. It's popular. It's the way all of our regional neighbours are going. It's the way the world is going. And it's inevitable that Australia is going to have to get on board because it signed the other treaties. So such as? Yeah, the uh, Chemical Weapons Treaty, the Biological Weapons Treaty, landmines and cluster munitions. Many of them Australia was also resistant to and then has ended up signing on and being very proud to be a signatory for those treaties. So we're looking forward to the day that the Australian government is retrospectively being proud that it is a date party to the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. How has the Australian media responded to that announcement about the Nobel Prize? Well, the Australian media has been thrilled. This is the first Nobel Peace Prize to go to an Australian-founded organisation and it has never gone to an Australian individual either. So the media, more than anything else that we've done, or more even than when the treaty was finalised and adopted, has suddenly started to pay attention. The Nobel Peace Prize has been amazing for shining a spotlight on our work, shining a spotlight on the treaty and shining a spotlight on the Australian government's terrible position to oppose this. So how did you feel last night as you watched the award being presented? It was surreal to be sitting here in Melbourne where I can this global campaign was forged 10 years ago by a small group of dedicated individuals and so often change begins with just that and to have been part of this journey the last five years and seen our campaign grow from strength to strength it's been quite surreal to then see us highlighted on the world stage with this prize so I felt overwhelmed. Were there tears? 
I won't lie, there were some tears and there was a fresh sense of determination that we have to continue our work. Also at the event last night were, were three wonderful women, dear friends who have been part of this process, who have been personally impacted by nuclear weapons. Karina and Rose Lester, Yankanjara Ananu women whose father is Yami Lester. He unfortunately passed away earlier this year, but they have been with us speaking up about the terrible impacts of nuclear testing in Australia and calling on the Australian government to, to honour their story and to respect their history by signing on to this treaty. So it was beautiful to be there with them and also Vanessa Griffin, uh, a campaigner, brilliant campaigner from Fiji. She was helped set up the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Network decades ago and she knows so well the impacts of that nuclear testing has had, especially on women's bodies across the Pacific. So it was wonderful to take a moment out of the campaigning work to, to watch that and celebrate together. And what's next for ICANN? The campaign will continue, will ramp up to get Australia to sign and ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, the current government has made it pretty clear that they will not be signing the treaty, um, but we're finding that support is strong and growing within the rest of Parliament. We've been working on a project called the Parliamentary Pledge, which enables all individual politicians to sign up their support to say that they will work for Australia to sign and ratify the treaty. We now have two thirds of the Australian Labor Party have signed on to that. All of the Greens, MPs and Senators, and some one Liberal, one National, a couple of Independents, and a couple of Nick Xenophon team uh, parliamentarians as well. So we'll continue to build that. Um, and what about internationally? Mm -hmm. Internationally, we'll be focusing very much on increasing the membership and ratifications of the treaty. So in the Asia Pacific region, we have some work to do to encourage more countries to sign on. And internationally, of course, we've got this new tool, this treaty. It's only existed for a few months and we need to put it to work. So campaigners all across the world, thousands of people will be taking this and it will breathe life and new force, international law, into our work to get a nuclear weapons free world. And what about those countries that currently possess nuclear weapons? How likely are they to sign up? Over time, it's inevitable that the nuclear weapon states will get on board. They will resist it for a while. It will take years, no doubt. Uh, but the ban treaty creates a new norm uh, by which all countries will be judged equally. And we've seen the effect that the other prohibition treaties have had for other weapons. It takes time, but the stigmatization of the weapon has an all sorts of different effects. It means that different parts of the chain can be worked against, for example, the financing of nuclear weapons. I think we'll start to see more divestment campaigns popping up all over the world, saying that companies cannot invest money in manufacturers of these weapons that have been banned. So the ban treaty changes things on a number of levels and we're going to see how that plays out. We know how effective a ban can be, partly because the nuclear weapon states and many of their allies have fought against this. Global majority were able to pass this treaty despite the opposition of the nuclear weapon states, so they will continue to bring pressure to bear from the outside against the countries that insist on holding on to their nuclear weapons. And things change. 
If Jeremy Corbyn is elected in the United Kingdom, that might spell the end of the UK's nuclear weapons program. Among NATO, there are signs that some countries, their political situation is changing and we might have the first NATO allies breaking away from the pack and signing onto the nuclear weapons ban treaty. So in Australia, we're saying, of course, you can have a relationship, you can have a military alliance with the United States, but you can exclude nuclear weapons from that alliance. In the same way New Zealand has. Exactly. New Zealand has rejected nuclear weapons and is still in a military alliance with the United States, and there are other countries in our region that have done the same. So it's time for Australia to follow the lead of our neighbours, reject nuclear weapons completely, and sign and ratify the ban treaty. That was Judith Peppard speaking with Jem Rummold outside Trades Hall on Monday as they were celebrating ICANN winning the Nobel Peace Prize. But right now on Wednesday Breakfast, we have Jason Potts on the line. Um, Jason is a professor of economics at RMIT University who specialises in problems of economic growth and change, who works in areas of cryptocurrency and economic evolution. technological change and institutional economics, along with many others. Now, Jason, thanks for joining us on the line today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, Now, you recently published an article in The Conversation saying that um, the recent cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, has has been ill-efficiently using blockchain. And for listeners at home um, who don't know what Bitcoin is, there's plenty of articles around circulating at a high volume of late about that. But we're going to try and talk about blockchain. Um, What is blockchain, Jason? So blockchain is the technology behind Bitcoin. So the two are, in a sense, inseparable. Um, Blockchain, I mean... Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, and a cryptocurrency is is basically money on the blockchain. And when we put other things, I mean, and a blockchain is really just a a distributed database, which just means a bunch of network computers all coming to some consensus about shared data. And when that data refers to money, it's a cryptocurrency. Bitcoin was the first example. But there's a lot of other things that we can put on blockchains, and that's sort of really the exciting thing about this new technology. Mm. And what's the significance? Like, because your article is centered around the Australian Stock Exchange, ASX, yeah. announcing that it will use blockchain as a system to record um, who owns shares of listed companies. Yeah. Not all, but some listed companies. Why? Who benefits from this move and, and why? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, so what they're doing there is, is, is um, property titling, which is just, just asset registries of just any records of who owns what is another blockchain application. So it was inevitable that um, this was going to, this technology was going to be used for um, exchanges. The main thing is it just, it just makes it better, faster, cheaper. It's a, um, a way of improving settlement, which at the moment um, for um, equity exchanges takes, you, know, you can buy and sell shares just in, a, in, a, in a fraction of a second. But the actual settlement process is a bit of a, a scam. It sort of takes three or four days to clear, sometimes longer. And that sort of, you know, the, it's slow um, almost deliberately because that um, sort of suits the um, people that are involved in the, on, on the other end of that. So, so, it's, yeah, so this is just a, a, a technology that just makes something work better. Mm. And who benefits from that? Well, just anyone using those exchanges. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 
And so, who who do you think will be using these exchanges? Will it be large companies? Is it independents like well, who are getting around? You, pr- yeah. you probably do, um, without realizing it. If you have, if you have any pension funds, then you're, you're using those exchanges. So, I mean, this is one of these things that you know, almost all Australians that have just any savings or have ever contributed to a, a pension fund, um, including a, you know, public ones, are using those exchanges. So. Mm-hmm. It, in, in a sense, it's, it's one of these things. It's actually a technology that's, um, you know, even though you might not use it directly, it does it does benefit you. Mm. And so you were saying um, Bitcoin has been using it unimaginatively. What are some of the <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. more imaginative approaches to use blockchain? Well, okay, so the more imagine, I mean, so you want to think of this technology as this is basically a peer-to-peer technology that enables um, you and me and lots of other people to do things directly with each other without having to go via a third party, whether that third party is an exchange um, or a bank or even the government. Um, We can base in the same way that what the big revolution that the internet and email enabled us to do is that we could send messages peer-to-peer directly without having to, um, you know, send them via the post office or whatever. Um, So what blockchain enables us to do is to send peer-to-peer value directly to each other or just anything that is digital information. Um, So the limits of imagination here, I mean, so the the first application was money. That was sort of one that was fairly obvious. But when we can start doing really any types of value transactions and I mean, one of the things that I think is really exciting here is the possibility that this opens up for a lot of third sector community organizations to really reimagine what they're doing in this space um, by having a new technology that enables them to um, organize, create governance mechanisms, and coordinate values directly in a way that was previously just, just hard to do um, for just transactions, costs, or administrative reasons. Mm, so h- how would that work, say, for somewhere like uh, 3CR's a community organizer? How would yeah. it enhance um, its operations? Through well, um, so we, we can use, so basically just remember, a, a blockchain is just a way of recording agreement about facts, right? So those facts could be just, you know, records of content. It could be sort of claims about ownership over things. It could be ways of just organizing um, networks of, of, of data or, or whatever. So this is sort of a new way to orga- to create organizations and governance. Um, now, at the moment, you're doing that through some kind of corporation or um, some kind of mechanism um, that then requires you to sort of create funding models where you have to sort of reach out and try and get you get community support or some way of moving value around. And you're doing that at the moment through Australian dollars or something like that. Um, effectively, you could potentially tokenize or create your own currency or own sort of unit of value that would be, that you would create, that your listeners and community support would, would contribute to and move around. And some people could contribute um, resources that might be, you know, that might be actually money, but other people could contribute in other ways. And just in terms of just work or, or effort or, or some other way of contributing value. And the sort of tokenizing model is a way for the rest of the community to essentially make collective decisions about that value and then to, to move that around. So there's, and this is sort of all very new. Um, but you know, I, I sort of 
see this as a way, as, as a really exciting sort of way to move past financial capitalism. Yeah, and, James, and, I, I just wanted to stop you for a moment because... Oh, Jason. Oh, sorry, yeah. Jason, um, just wanted to stop you for a second because I think we just need to just let that point sink in for a moment. If, um, if you're listening along and really letting this sink, what this is, is essentially the undermining of a, 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 a new direction for how finance and politics work together which holds our world together right now. This, yeah. this is revolutionary. Yeah, and that's why this is exciting, right? So this sort of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin stuff, I mean, why I sort of tag that as somewhat unimaginative? Why? It's just that, you know, that's the, that's the least interesting aspect of this. Um, what this is, is a new way of doing governance or the way in which we organize and move value around. And, all societies are based on a technology of doing that. And traditionally, that technology was the hierarchic corporation, the use of finance um, organized as a third-party operation, and then the use of government as a way of monitoring and controlling that. Um, this technology enables us to essentially rebuild how we do things together using peer-to-peer -to -peer technology. Um, and this is something where I think this, you know, the, this sort of re-completely, well, this is the first technology that has really come along that puts um, self-organizing communities at its core. And, in the, and the idea of sort of tokenizing, or the idea of using the blockchain as a way of sort of tokenizing um, organizations is really just another way of saying, enabling them to um, use technology of the blockchain, um, which runs on the internet, um, in order to create and move value to create governance to create sort of all of the sort of mechanisms that any community organization or group um, needs to do now the what this does is this reinvents money um, in a way that is far closer to sort of human needs it reinvents organization um, it reinvents things like sort of governments and nation states as just being not quite necessary in the same way that they have been previously. So mm. that's sort of the excitement that I, I, I sort of, I, why I think this is such a significant technology. Well, I'm so glad you agreed to come on, Jason, because when I read your article um, in publishing the conversation, Bitcoin may be reaching new heights, but the ASX shows that blockchain is reinventing business. Um, yeah, when I read your article, it was a great article, but what you're highlighting through your oral form of story is, is great and quite exciting. And thanks so much um, for joining us here and giving us deeper insight into that. Absolutely, my pleasure. Appreciate it. You're showing to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. That was Dr. Jason Potts, who's an economic theorist who specializes in problems of economic growth and change. You're tuned well, I know the economists might not make it sound uh, as exciting sometimes, but it is—it really is exciting. I was speaking to some people uh, at the weekend at the Entheogenesis Australis uh, 2017 uh, Psychedelic Symposium. Um, uh, some very smart people who are putting together um, their own cryptocurrency that they're planning on launching to do exactly this uh, sort of thing to build uh, together the, um, the the psychedelic community across the world. Uh, this is a responsible community. I'm not talking about a bunch of 
drug dealers. I'm talking about people uh, who are looking to uh, really investigate the the therapeutic uh, uh, potential and beyond uh, of a lot of these different substances, and also then the, the culture that forms around them. These are these are culture cultural uh, generating substances as well. Um, and and it's really interesting. It was very uh, early days yet, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around exactly what uh, blockchain uh, what what blockchain can do and what um, cryptocurrencies mm. can do. I've been keeping myself away. I, a lot of friends have been getting onto Bitcoin. I've been keeping away because to me it's looking like um, it's looking like a gambler's bubble at the moment. It's looking like one of those because I've got no idea how the uh, how the whole value of the thing um, gets in there, other than it seems like a lot of speculation. Yeah, uh, and that's you know that's. And but that's what was interesting about um, Jason Potts just saying, just creating that different value system. It doesn't necessarily have to rely on monetary value, but giving that power back to established community institutions mm. to actually put the earnest back on what is the core values of that space. And blockchain facilitates that and takes out a middle person, a middle institution that says, say, for... The US dollar it takes out of that. That's uh, a lot of what's happening with um, these uh, these disruptive technologies. It's really about just uh, getting rid of those uh, middle person uh, positions where, where people have been doing uh, jobs that are essentially moving A to, to B, but it's really, you know, A is the producer, B is the, the consumer or somewhere along the line, and this person in the middle isn't doing much else other than, than paperwork or bookwork. Uh, and if we can get computers to do that, I think that's perfectly fine. Then we can, people can do more interesting things. Now, as I mentioned um, before, I was uh, at the uh, Entheogenesis Australis uh, Psychedelic Symposium over the weekend, and we do have just a short snippet of audio from the uh, from the live broadcast that we did there on oh, excuse me on Sunday. Uh, the full thing is available at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Uh, and we spoke, uh, there were a number of people on the panel. It was Dr. Monica Barrett from the Drug Policy Modelling Program, uh, Rick Doblin, PhD from the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, uh, Nick Kent, the President of the Students for Sensible Drug Policy Chapter at Melbourne University, Fiona Meesham, who is from the UK, from a program called The Loop, uh, who have run their first successful pill testing um, program, and it's been quite successful um, but the voice you're going to hear uh, now is Dr Ben Sessa also from the UK uh, from the Imperial College of London uh, he has been uh, doing uh, MDMA uh, psychotherapy research uh, he's also a child and adolescent uh, uh, psychotherapist and we were talking about uh, novel psychoactive substances and the, um, uh, the just the poor way that our governments approach these laws the 1971 Misuse of Drugs Act is the greatest piece of pseudoscience that, that politics has managed to come up with in the last 46 years. It's an extraordinary piece of non-scientific uh, political folly that has caused immense amounts of social harm and degradation for almost 50 years. It's, it's interesting because when I started in this field, the word prohibition was a word that we used to describe the well-known laughable folly of the 1920s. And everyone accepts what a ridiculous waste of time that was. Now, this is exactly what we've been living in for the last 50 years, but with a much broader range of drugs. And because we've grown up in it, we sort of think the governments must have their, our best interests at heart, and there must be some sense to it. Now, the war on drugs has lost on every single front. It's lost on the front of reducing harm, because it's increased harm. It's lost on the front of reducing deaths. Weirdly, it's even lost on the front of reducing usage. 
it hasn't even reduced usage. So if it's not reducing harm, it's not reducing deaths, and it's not reducing usage of drugs, then what is its purpose? And the only front on which to fight the war on drugs today is the moral and ethical front, which is that drugs are just bad. And when I say drugs, I don't mean alcohol and cigarettes, because they're not drugs which is just sloppy pharmacology. We, we rolled our eyes yeah. uh, so in unison. We're in this peculiar position where if we're going to have such a far-reaching social policy that has such a massive impact on so many people, and its only front that it's being fought on is a moral or ethical front, then my God, we have to look at some other things. There are a great many things that lots of people consider immoral and unethical. Eating meat. Uh, keeping pets and the conversation went on. We, we, we uh, discussed a little bit about um, this. This is really where the the front of the war on drugs is, and you see this with uh, uh, the discussion around the uh, the injecting centre. The reason, the only reason why the government could come up with before they accepted it, and thank you now that they have accepted it. The only reason that they had uh, that had sort of any sway was oh, but that's encouraging drug use, which is this kind of. It's not really a uh, a scientific point. It's kind of this moral point that if we if we allow this kind of facility then it sends this message to people that it's that it's going to be okay and it's just ridiculous it what it is is it's an anti uh antitrust position it's it's saying from these people who don't know what they're talking about sitting in parliament they're not listening to the experts across our state they're not listening to the people that dedicate their lives to understanding this they're just throwing them off to the side and then saying no no i know better on this issue and legislating based on ignorance, fear, and misinformation. And, and that is the default policy uh, of uh, Victoria's drug policy, Australia's drug policy, and most of the world's drug policy. Um, it's but, tr it's yeah. true. Small fights are being won, though. Got to take Small that. fights, Small yes. fights, the drug um, inject safe injecting centre, which... Obviously, it's a small step forward, but, but then, slowly education's you know, getting there. Even even in that discussion, and, and I'll be very quick because we're just about out of time, but even in that discussion, um, I've seen some ridiculous things. Now that it's approved, uh, people are coming out and saying, oh, yes, but we don't want them injecting ice in there. And there's absolutely no reason why people shouldn't be injecting any kind of substance in a medically supervised injecting centre. It's a pure moral fear from a base of ignorance. Yeah, so you're at the core of this, Nick. You have a show in Psychedelia. <laughs> 2 um, p.m. Sundays. <laughs> that educates the public and willing listeners and others to go out and talk about these problems and hopefully get a bit of momentum to make a positive change. Absolutely. Um, here on 3CR, that program is. And we had some lovely guests this fine Wednesday, which is heading to a top of 37, I believe. Uh, stay cool. Stay cool. Be cool. Thank you so much for lending us your ears this Wednesday. We appreciate it. We always appreciate it. We'll be back next week. <laughs> See ya. Oh. <laughs> Wobbly. <laughs> Wobbly old. Hey, hey, maybe that's a good just moment to just say 3cr.org.au. If you want to donate to 3CR and help our Wobbly studio, get onto it. <laughs> <laughs>